Welcome to Winning Slowly, a podcast about culture, technology, religion, ethics, and art. I'm Stephen Caradini. And I'm Chris Kreitcho. Today we're going to talk about uh, copyrights and also kind of dabble a little bit in patents. We're going to talk about how to think about copyright. Um, so there's been a lot of work on how to uh, legally change copyright, a lot of talk about Disney, a lot of talk about the various ways that things get lost in copyright. But what we're going to talk about today is literally how we as a culture think about copyright. Um, this seems to be an ambitious topic, but we're going to go there nonetheless. We're winning slowly. That's what we do. We're pretty ambitious over here. So, but we're really interested in this idea that um, the copyright and the ability to duplicate copyright, which is something that Scholars like Lessig, Lawrence Lessig, and um, many others have, have pointed out as a particular quirk of copyright in the 21st century. Um, so that part is not unique and original. But we're interested in the fact that the ability to um, infinitely duplicate a copyrightable sort of piece of information, essentially, um, is causing some interesting ways that we think about the value of things. So to trace that out a little bit for some of our listeners who may not pick up immediately what we're talking about, 40 years ago, if I wrote a book and published a book, you could, generally speaking, get that book by buying a physical copy of that book. And the way copyright law was set up was built around this entire idea that you had to have a physical copy of something to own a copy of it. And there were inherent costs to producing these things. There were inherent costs to distributing these things. There were, you know, you had to have a printing press and distribution mechanism and all of that. And over the course of the last 20 years or so, all of those costs have gotten much smaller. In, in some ways, in some fields, the costs are essentially the effort of writing it. Because right. you can click a button and generate an ebook, and click another couple buttons and upload that to Amazon or anywhere else, and be done. The production and distribution costs are essentially zero. So the economic situation of production for things that we copyrighted, whether that was books or music or really any kind of intellectual creative activity that doesn't yield you know, an iPhone or an Android phone or a, a physical thing like that, but that yields content, well, the production and distribution costs of these have dropped so substantially in many cases that the economics that drove copyright laws have changed dramatically, substantially. Right. Those are called marginal costs, by the way, the base level that it takes to produce something. And so corporations were founded in the 1800s and 1900s under the fact that the marginal costs of production were extremely high. You had to have a factory, you had to have a printing press, or you had to have the ability to pay factories or printing presses. And so those were just fixed costs that you could not change. Um, with the internet, their marginal cost of almost everything eventually will end up at zero. Um, and that's a theory that um, people like Chris Anderson um, from Wired, who also wrote Free, um, this is not an idea that um, we made up. However, the ongoing um, surge in Chinese uh, media production and um, thing production um, has continued to shift this sort of landscape. I just read an interesting article in 
um, ESPN, the magazine, about how um, Chinese people are dealing with uh, shoes and jersey knockoffs uh, because they all want to buy the real thing, quote unquote, Nikes, um, or a real uh, basketball-sponsored, NBA-sponsored jersey. Um, but there are knockoffs available that are essentially the same thing uh, because the cost of production in China is lower because they've had those marginal costs sunk for a long time. So the knockoffs are pretty much the same thing as the originals um, because honestly, sometimes they're being produced in factories next to each other or <laughs> the same factory. That there's this value is, is kind of this ongoing negotiation of what does a real thing value? What's the, what does it mean to you as opposed to what does a knockoff mean to you? Um, in the same thing, um, not just for shoes and jerseys, but for music and books, and it gets very complicated. And one of the things that comes up there is, okay, so as Ben Thompson pointed out in a, a Stratechery podcast episode I was listening to last week, you know, the difference in some categories is a really big deal. The difference between your favorite band and a knockoff of your favorite band is it's huge. You're you're not generally speaking going to trade in your favorite band and you're not quite favorite band but a knockoff there of whom you can get for free. You'll probably pony up the 10 bucks for your favorite band's album. Some of these things aren't fungible. They're not interchangeable. Right. But a pair of shoes that looks exactly the same them. with a Nike swoop on them because China's copyright laws aren't quite the same as ours and that are made in the same factory or the next door factory with the same materials and the same designs and everything else. Well, Which the designs can be copyrighted, but the shoe manufacturing process can be patented. Right. But those things, you know, if you're looking at them, they're, they're perfectly interchangeable, perhaps. They're exactly the same thing. And so, you know, you're looking there at a situation where, okay, Nike, Nike sensibly wants to have a way to protect its investment in having designed these things and having come up with a process to create them, mm -hmm. et cetera. And that's why patents exist. Likewise, if you're a musician or an author or whomever, you're looking around going, I really like to actually be able to make some money off of these things. So I'm going to copyright it and hope that you know, people don't steal this. And in the United States and other Western countries, we have a long tradition of protecting the rights of those creators. Right. Insofar big... as America even affords you an automatic copyright. Right. Which is unusual in the history of copyright, but also, you know, it's not exactly the way that other countries' copyrights work. Um, and so there's this interesting um, give and take that we've recognized that, you know, Humans will tend to try to make money off of other people's ideas. This is a thing that happens. Um, and so we want to protect the people who came up with the original idea. And so we've built this giant artifice that says this is how we do this. But because Disney has so entirely locked down the process and keeps extending copyright ad infinitum, and because there are people on the Internet who are rattling sabers against this, there's been sort of a shift in how we think about what is valuable and what we want to pay value for. And Stephen's comment about Disney there, over the course of the last many decades, Disney has 
lobbied hard and very successfully to extend the term of copyright for a long time. So at this point, when you get a copyright, it lasts for 90 years. Mm -hmm. So our, our big question is, okay, we've got this copyright that exists, which has some positive effects and some deleterious effects. We have things that come up in opposition to it. You have the copy left movement, and that's closely associated a lot of times with Creative Commons licenses and public domain licenses that intentionally Mm -hmm. put things in the public domain right off the bat. Mm -hmm. The interesting question for us then is, okay, what, what should we do? What can we do as people who are creatives? Well, and as people who are, you know, purchasing and who Mm -hmm. are, you know, being consumers of creativity, Mm -hmm. um, both of those things are important. I mean, as creative people, it's, it's, it, it becomes very quickly uh, a sort of ideological thing, which doesn't seem like this would become something <laughs> ideological, but th- it really does become that way because you have to think about what do I value in terms of creating this? Um, do I value um, making sure that I get paid, even if I don't get paid at all? Um, I would rather have no one have it than people get it for free, um, which is essentially what you're saying by putting a price on it. You can either steal this or not have this unless you pay me. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're saying, I value this sort of production, which is not a bad thing. People need to get paid. Um, people, people need, need to, to get food on the plate. That's yeah, the thing. That's right. um, not all ideologies have a good and bad associated with them. Um, but So that's an ideology that stands in that direction. We need to get paid for this thing. Um, and I don't think that people will do it if I don't force them to do it. Um, on the opposite end of the spectrum is I'm just going to let this go out into the world and because it's good and if I give people a way to pay me whatever they feel like they value it as, then people will actually pay me. And so this is a much more risky um, sort of proposition in some ways um, in that your work can, can go out and become extremely popular and you could theoretically never get paid for it. Um, now, it's entirely possible in both ideologies that you put work out there and nothing happens. <laughs> and so on some level, they have the same amount of risk. Um, but the the other end, like I was saying, the ideology there is people will generally pay for things that they see value in. And so even if I don't make them pay, they will pay. And perhaps they will pay more um, or they will value me more than what I think they will value me at. And so that's a more um, kind of optimistic, um, kind of um, uh, generous sort of reading of commerce. The big trick, of course, is that at some level, both of these are true readings of the human condition. Uh, On the one hand, you have plenty of things like Kickstarter projects or, Mm -hmm. hey, we're just going to release this, pay us what you want, that do really, really well. And fans pony up lots of money to support something they want to see happen. On the other hand, you have Gucci black markets in which people Mm -hmm. pay a lot for less expensive ripoffs that are designed to look and essentially perform just like the original Right, but without the same level of markup, and so you right. have, uh, you really have a situation here where neither ideology is actually false in its statements about what people do, because people do both of these. People are motivated to support things that they like, 
And right. that can range from Nike and Apple and other consumer brands like that to, you know, Stephen's love of the Mountain Goats, his favorite indie band ever. <laughs> yeah, Don't get him started. <laughs> yeah, the Mountain Goats. Uh, and everything in between. Uh, but how people act toward those groups and products and created items, how we as consumers act toward them varies enormously. So, you know, if I put something out there, which one of these instincts do I trust? Or do I trust both of them somehow? Or, you know, and as I'm acting as a consumer, which one am I acting on? Am I acting on the, and eh, this isn't actually the same thing, but it's good enough? Right. Or am I acting on the, I really care about whoever originally came up with this thing? Right. I think for me, one of the distinguishing factors is often the existence of a singular or or at least identifiable source of the item with which I can identify. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm just much less likely to care where I get my news media, whether it's an article on The Atlantic or an article on The New York Times or whatever else. You know, if The New York Times puts up a paywall, eh, I'll go read an article on The Atlantic instead because mm -hmm. most generic reporting articles are well, generic reporting articles. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, if I'm listening to the Mountain Goats, whom I like as well, I want to give this band my money. I want to support them because there's something unique and individual there. And right. sometimes you see that in a publishing situation. I mean, I read Ta-Nehisi Coates, which I'm probably mispronouncing, but we're going to run with that anyway. Sorry, guys. Sorry. <laughs> uh, over at The Atlantic, I think he's brilliant. I often disagree with him, but I think he's brilliant, and I like reading his stuff. And that is not fungible. It's not transferable somewhere else. Yeah, we can't just make another one of him. Right. But most stuff at The Atlantic, I can just go somewhere else. Now, I want to support Ta-Nehisi Coates. I want to support the Mountain Goats, uh, so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in terms really of my shoes, I mean, I like my Asics for when I go running, but if they don't have the shoes I want, I don't care. Right. Yeah. There's not a whole lot of uh, brand loyalty um, in that particular area for you. And so that's a really interesting negotiation that every consumer has to do. It's like, where are the issues that I have brand loyalty on and where are the issues that, you know, things are just not that big of a deal. The one really weird area that I have complete and utter brand loyalty will not ever change is that I will only buy Philadelphia cream cheese. Oh, like me too. I am, I am convinced <laughs> that this is the only type of cream cheese that actually exists as cream cheese in the world. And so Everything I will go without cream cheese as opposed to not buying Philadelphia cream cheese. Um, it's The brand loyalty there is literally like unfun not fungible to me. Um, <laughs> Whereas other people are like, you're a moron, just buy cream cheese. <laughs> um, but to me, there's a brand loyalty there that's, you know, completely, um, you know, unchangeable. Um, whereas with, I'm kind of the same way with you. Shoes are just whichever pair happens to fit best when I'm in, you know, the running store. Like right now I'm wearing a pair of Nikes because they, those were the best ones before I had New Balance. It's entirely likely that I'll end up with Asics or something else next time I go get shoes. I just don't have a lot of brand loyalty. And that's, you know, some some level it has to do with your peculiar, um, you know, interests and your perceived value of each individual thing um, in relation to your life. So I eat cream cheese almost every day of my life. 
um, because I use I eat it for breakfast. And so there's Stevie a lot goes of through a tub every morning. It turns out. Yeah, no, I don't eat a whole tub every morning. <laughs> <laughs> I, or maybe that's why I go running. I don't know. But uh, uh, <laughs> so, but my and my shoes, even though I use them all the time, they're not like this sort of integral part of my life in a way that I identify with them. Um, which is even more fascinating for Chris because he runs like miles and miles and miles a week, but he still doesn't see his shoes as a particular integrative you know, part of who he is. Although I do know runners that will only have one particular brand of shoes. Mm-hmm. It's a very, it's a very fascinating thing. Um, but what I'm trying to say is that I think each consumer um, naturally figures out which things are valuable um, to, to themselves and what that value is and when and where we will pay for whatever it is. Um, and I think that we do that unconsciously. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, until I realized that I was turning up my nose at the other cream cheeses, I didn't even <laughs> think about that I would just pass over cream cheese if they didn't have what I wanted. So I think that for consumers, we really have to start thinking about why do I make these choices in these mm-hmm. particular ways? Um, and where can I really support these companies that I am actually showing extra value in my own life Mm -hmm. and where can I you know kind of modify my uh, my giving or behavior to reflect what I'm actually doing with value right I think it's really important that we ask that question that we say Mm -hmm. how do I actually demonstrate that I value the things that I use and the answer may or may not be financial. It may or may not be giving money. It may be becoming somebody who proselytizes and becomes that guy who raves about ASICs everywhere he goes to every person who might even be remotely interested in running, you Mm -hmm. know, oh, and it may be financial, but how, how do our choices in these areas affect others? How do my purchases affect the companies out there? Or how does my, you know, torrenting something, which I, I don't really do, but if I go rip a bunch of CDs from the interwebs that way, how does that affect the people who created those things that I ripped from the interwebs? Right. Uh, and to some degree, you know, the RIAA and the MPAA have been trying to get people to think about this for years in, you know, terrible advertising. You campaigns. wouldn't steal a car. Oh my gosh. Oh my <laughs> gosh. But regardless of terrible ad campaigns, that is the sort of thing that I'm suggesting, that we're suggesting that people do, is really mm-hmm. say, okay, uh, I used to use that bike a whole lot, and now I don't. Clearly, biking has not become super important to me. But I actually do really value these shoes, and I walk around in them all the time, and people notice them all the time. Like, I should probably tell people when they notice them that I really do like these shoes, and they really <laughs> are good and valuable. Um, and if I know. bought a cheap knockoff, well, maybe I should think about not buying a cheap knockoff next right. time. Right. Unless the cheap knockoff is better than the original, and that's really a complex situation <laughs> that we don't have enough time to discuss today. Um, but so it's so for for consumers, I think there really has to be some um, you know conscious you know evaluation of what we actually do because when you get into a pattern and a routine, you just do stuff and you don't mm-hmm. ever think about it. Um, but for creatives and for creators, I think that there's you know definitely some soul searching that has to go on on what types of things that you make or if you only make one thing 
um, what do you do with that one thing you make? Mm -hmm. Is this the sort of thing that you can throw out into the world and say, hey, please support? Um, or is this the sort of thing where you say, look, this is my flagship thing. It costs this much money. And it's not because I'm a jerk, but because this is literally what I do. Um, and I think know, the, the third possibility may be finding a way to do both. Can you Can you put something out there and say, look, I've licensed this in such a way that you can make a derivative work from it. I'm not going to sue you if you put a mashup of it on YouTube because I think that's cool. Mm. But pay me to download the album. It, it doesn't have to be a one or the other. And I think part of our trick in this particular case is thinking in those kinds of binary terms has been unhelpful. You know, there are yeah. lots of places where binaries really do exist and you have to choose one or the other. Right. This isn't one of them. There are lots of ways in which you can say, uh, don't sell this itself, but feel free to sell a derivative work that's not the same. Yeah. I, I think it just it gets sticky in that when you're, you know, there definitely is a third option where you can license it and say, hey, I'd like to get paid for this, <laughs> um, which goes back to our, you know, I'm trying to be a professional button yeah. from last uh, podcast. But I think that at some level you you have to have kind of a base assumption that you're working off of that people are going the good will out and the people are going to support what they value or that people are not going to support what they value. I know that like you're going the the third way and I think that in practice it ends up looking like that, but I think that you know as creatives we have to be I think that there has to be a little more of an allegiance to one side or the other yeah, per right. thing, per thing. I don't think that you have to have like, you know, exactly for everything you ever do. Cause like when I write independent clauses, which is my blog, like everything of that is as free as I can get it. And I want people to quote it. Like that's the whole point of the blog is that it circulates. Um, I don't want to get paid off of it because that would minimize the value of the actual words that bands can then quote. So in that case, I literally don't want to get paid and I literally want people to use it. Um, whereas, you know, for other things like, you know, my professional writing and editing, like those are things that like I want to get paid for and are not really, <laughs> you know, negotiable sorts right. of like, hey, pay me if you feel like it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I think that highlights what I was thinking, but not fully articulating even to myself, which is that there are sort of two different things going on here, which are really orthogonal to each other. And one of them is, look, Ooh, you need word. to pay me for this. And one of them is, I want this to be a public good. And mm. those are, or a private good. Those mm. are different ends. And it is possible that you want to get paid for something and want it to be available in such a way that the public can build off of it. Right. And... So I think you can say, and really this is what my inclination would be in a lot of ways for most pieces of art that I would create, and someone else might land in a different spot. My inclination would be to say, look, you have to pay me if you're going to listen to this. I made it. I worked hard on it. Pay me some money. You know, falling on that side of that line, as you outlined, you do have to pick one or, or the other of those things. You can't say both, yeah, it's really important that you actually pay me if you want this, and eh, pay me if you want and you think it's valuable. Those are not, they're not the kinds of things you can do at the same time. They're, right. they're opposites of each other. Right. But you can say at the same time, you have to pay me if you want this, but you can go do something cool with it also. 
because those aren't contradictory. They're running in different directions. And I think what's interesting and perhaps most worthy of reform in our copyright system is that it's very difficult to distinguish the two right now. Right. Yeah. And I mean, and there's also like, there is a third possibility of saying like the minimum cost you have to pay for this is a dollar, but Mm. you can pay whatever you want, Mm -hmm. um, which is another model that exists. But I still think that's operating off of a base assumption that there is a base level value that you must pay to enter. Right. Um, So there are third options and there are other ways to formulate it. But like, you know, as as a as a as a moderate, it kind of pains me to end up in a binary, but that, <laughs> I think there really is, you know, like you were saying, those two ideas are opposites. Like you can pay if you would like, or I will make you pay. Right. I will make you pay if you would like is is not a thing. <laughs> <laughs> We are Siamese if you please. We are Siamese if you don't please. I will make you pay if you would like to listen to this thing. If you would not like to listen to this thing, you don't have to pay. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Yeah, so you're right, though. I think that um, the copyright system that we have now, um, which is starting to change, Mm -hmm. um, copyleft, creative commons, um, I think that's starting to change. But I still think that there's um, that sort of thinking that sort of, of possibility, those actual tools have not filtered into the ways that we mm-hmm. think about uh, doing our work to a great degree, especially in a corporate sort of setting, mm-hmm. as opposed to a um, to a uh, you know, private or independent sort of setting. Yeah, um, and I think that companies that do manage to kind of harness the the power of opening up their um, their lens a little bit, those are companies that can succeed wildly, like, mm-hmm. you know, fan fiction at all. Um, <laughs> you know, Henry Jenkins and all the books he's ever written. Um, so I just read uh, Spreadable Media, which talks a lot about that. Um, but so I think you're right that there's a lot that we can do to grow going forward um, in how we as creatives think about the ways that we price and manage the things that we have under copyright. Um, And I think there's also a lot that um, consumers can do to assess how they actually value things Mm -hmm. in a digital society that says you don't necessarily have to value anything. So, I will add to the show notes a link to one intriguing way people have come up to get around some of these very issues, which is the CCLI model for Christian music used in churches. And with that, we'll call it a wrap for what has been episode 0.11 of Winning Slowly. One of these days we'll make it to season one, and it will be a joyous day indeed. <laughs> All of our uh, work is, uh, is I almost said copyrighted, but it's, <laughs> it's attributed under a um, Creative Commons uh, share-alike license. Um, so... Please don't just copy and paste and say it's yours, but please do uh, remix and chop it up and use it in various ways. Um, And if you do want to just copy and paste it, at least say that we did it. Until next time, I have been Chris Kreitcho. And I am and will be Stephen Caradini. Thanks for listening.